Good morning, everyone. If you have your scripture, let's turn to Nahum chapter 1, or your cell phone, or your bulletin. Either one will work. So glad you're here today, and what a joy to participate with what God is saying in these minor prophets. How many of you thank God for the Word of God, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, the Book of God? Well, I don't know why, but I'll make a confession. Uh, preaching since 1974, I've never preached through the book, uh, from the book of Nahum. So it's, if, if it goes well today, God gets the glory. And if it doesn't go well, it's Pastor David's fault. Okay, I just want to just disclaim it right away. <laughs> but for the last three months, I've been exegeting the, I think it's 47 verses in the three chapters in the book of, the book of Nahum. And what a powerful message. And the Holy Spirit is here today to take, to, to take the truth and let it marinate in your heart and uh, change us. How many of you are not perfect yet? Okay. Uh, about a quarter of you. Okay, let's try that. How, how many of you are still in process and you're not all there yet, but, but God's working on you? And uh, it's, it's a process. Paul said uh, don't, to the church he was worried about him in Philippi, he said, look, I know you're worried about me, and this may not turn out well on the earthly side, but he said, look, to live is Christ and die is gain. Now that last word in that phrase, to live is Christ, not everybody can say that. Some people have other stuff in there. But God knows if you're born again of uh, uh, the Spirit of God, God knows where you're at and where you live, and he knows you're in process. And in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, uh, the Lord said, the Lord, verse 7 says, The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He's close to those who trust in him. And then in verse 15, A messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Judah, and fulfill all your vows. For your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Now, Nahum was a prophet with a message. The minor prophets, again, are minor not because of their content, but because of their size. His name means comfort or compassion. He's raised up by God to comfort the Jews who were afraid of the Syrians. You say, well, what's all this got to do with me? Just hang tight. And you'll see the plan will lean in your heart where God applies this truth to your heart. He was raised up by God to comfort the Jews. Whereas Jonah was sent to Nineveh to give the people opportunity to repent, Nahum was called to announce that Nineveh's judgment was imminent. Nahum continues a story that began with Jonah. Jonah preached repentance. The Assyrians received the message and they repented. Six score thousand, 120,000 of the 600,000 people in Nineveh at the time repented. But now it's 100 years later. During the time of Nahum and wicked King Manasseh, the Assyrians have returned to their wicked ways. They had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, ten tribes. They are now lording their power over Judah in the south, two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. It's called Judah because of the size, Judah being the bigger one. And God's people needed a word, a fresh word to their heart as they faced terrifying Assyrian Empire people. So what's the big idea in Nahum? What's the big idea? Charles Swindoll said, although Nahum lived in a dark time, God had a word for his people then and now. And it's the one big idea of our text. And here it is. God is fully aware of what Judah is going through. God's justice is always right and sure towards his enemies. And thirdly, God can choose to grant mercy for a time, but his mercy will never compromise his justice in the end. Swindoll says that Nahum is a gospel message. 
Because one, God was gracious in a time filled with all kinds of idolatry. Two, God was kind by sending Nahum to comfort those who were being oppressed. And God was revealing his power in a hopeless situation for Judah, his people, by delivering them from the evil powers of Assyria. And God gives hope to us when we see the own, our own darkness and our own sin in our own hearts. So I got a couple of questions for you this morning. Have you ever asked yourself, how can God use my pain or grief or regrets or sorrow and really work all things together for good? Have you ever questioned God's goodness in a wilderness season? Have you ever wondered if God could gain new ground in your heart and conquer your sin and misplaced affections? In chapter 1, we see the power of Jehovah as he breaks the yokes of the Assyrians to deliver Judah. In chapter 2, it's a dramatic picture of the siege of Nineveh. And in chapter 3, we see Nineveh's fall and ultimate ruin because of sin and idolatry, all after a relapse after the preaching of Jonah. So what's the message? and What's the, what's the relevance? What's the value? What's the Holy Spirit saying? If you have your, your bulletin and you want to just write down four words, four words today, I just want to leave four words with you, my four wisdom discoveries from chapter one in the book of Nahum. And here are my four wisdom discoveries in chapter one. Number one, because God is jealous, his love won't leave us alone. Everybody have that in your bulletin? Would you read that with me out loud? Let's read that together out loud. Because God is jealous, his love won't leave us alone. In chapter 1, verse 2, the scripture says, the Lord is a jealous God. Now, what does it mean that God is jealous? That's not what it means. <laughs> what does it mean when the scripture says God is jealous? We'll give you another chance. That's okay. What does it mean that God is jealous? Warren Wearsby, writing on Nahum, says this. God is jealous means this. God deserves total obedience and will not permit any rivals. It's the jealousy of a husband over his wife or the mother over her child. God is jealous over his people and for his glory, therefore he must punish sin. In other words, Israel's ten tribes were overcome and captured, and Judah's two tribes are being oppressed by the wicked Assyrians. God promised in Nahum 2.12 that he would restore his people. But right now, God's people are under attack and they're under siege. His people were wondering if God had forgotten them. So God raises up Nahum to prophesy that God loves his people too much to forsake them. In other words, God would be so jealous for his glory, his name, that he would bring vengeance on his adversaries. In other words, God promises vindication against all the wrongs against his people. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, God cannot let the guilty go free out of a false sense of compassion. Spurgeon said, sin must be accounted for because God will not acquit the wicked. In other words, every sin will be paid for, either in hell or at the cross. In other words, God has never pardoned or blotted out sin ever without punishment. Why not? Because God is jealous for his glory, his name, and his reputation. 
In Isaiah 36 and 37, the Assyrian armies came down to slaughter Jerusalem. They taunted King Hezekiah and they said, you're toast. It's over. Hezekiah went to prayer. The Bible says he asked God to give to save the city with all the Assyrians coming in and surrounding it. And that night, one angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. You know why? Because God is jealous over his people. And God was drawing his people back to himself. And today, God's spirit, God by his spirit, won't leave us alone when we drift and get detoured and distracted. How many of you have ever been convicted and God was speaking to your heart and drawing you back? How many of you have ever been? Everybody here. You know why? Because God loves you and is, is that jealous over, over his people. He's weaning our hearts from lesser things, affections and gods and idols and poor substitutes that leave us longing for more. Not because God is narcissistic or jealous or, or, or selfish. It's because God wants what's best for us. Now, what does it mean that God is jealous? He wants what's best for you. What does it mean that God is jealous? Well, jealousy has to do with what you already have. Whereas envy has to do with what someone else has. God doesn't envy anybody here today. But he's jealous. In Psalm 50, verse 10 to 12, God said, everything in the forest is mine. Get this. The cattle in a thousand hills is mine. Everything in the field and the world is mine, verse 12. In other words, I don't need anything for the world is mine. So God's not envious. But he's jealous. What's he jealous for? He's jealous for his name and reputation and glory in the world and in our hearts. That's why he's weaning all of our hearts from the lesser things today. Everybody here on this beautiful summer Sunday, God is, wean God is speaking to our hearts. Not because he needs something, but because we need something. Everybody got that? It's kind of like me in the lunch line over at Wegmans, and I'll be walking out the store, and I'll see all to the right. Why do they have it to the right? It's the candy rack. It happens when I drive through McDonald's or drive by McDonald's. I feel my steering wheel actually pulling itself into McDonald's for a large ice mocha with no whipped cream and non-fat milk. And then at work, on uh, this past week, on Thursday at work, a lady at our office said, you know, liquid sugar is the worst kind for you because you shouldn't be drinking those mochas because as soon as you start drinking those mochas and the sugar gets in here, it goes immediately. It's not like digesting cake and cookies, which are another issue on another sermon. Uh, but but that, that, that liquid sugar goes right into your bloodstream. And two things came to mind. Number one, get behind me, Satan. And then number two, Unhi says, when I, the steering wheel's pulling in, she says, you don't need that mocha. I don't say, get thee behind me, Satan, there. I just say, yes, I do, yes, I do, yes, I do. There's, there's, there's a war going on in all of our hearts. Many people come to Jesus, and they want to know this, the minimal requirements to get to heaven. Now, I got a question for you. If you were proposing in marriage, would you ask your fiance, honey, what are the minimal requirements for me to stay married to you? <laughs> How many of you know that's not a good premise to build a relationship on? God is jealous. My second discovery is this. 
Because God is merciful, he hasn't given us what we deserve. This next point knocks the stuffing out of entitlement. Look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. Now what does that mean? It means the Lord is patient when his enemies seem to be gloating and winning the war. Did Israel and Judah deserve the mercy of God? Of course not. So what does it mean that God is slow to anger? It means that God is long-suffering and he gives us time to consider, repent, and be saved. G. Campbell Morgan said this about this verse. He said, there are limits to the forbearance of God, but what are they? On one hand, God will never destroy someone until full opportunity is granted. But the rejection of that opportunity is the limit of God's patience. Morgan says, defiance of God is the limit of God's patience. And in our text, Nineveh repented under the preaching of Jonah. But Nineveh returned to whoredoms and witchcraft and idolatry and cruelty. And for 100 years, God didn't give Nineveh what they deserved. For 100 years, he was slow to anger. What's the takeaway? Here's my takeaway from that. Never confuse God's patience with his approval. In Matthew 19, 27, Peter said, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. Now what's in this for us? Peter's feeling cheated. Peter's feeling undervalued, underappreciated. Peter is feeling a little left out. My next door neighbor won the lottery. How come I didn't win it? I, I, I serve the Lord. Really? How many of you know we don't, you don't really, when, sometimes we really don't know what we really, really need, right? How many of you thank God he hasn't given us what we deserve? John Ortberg wrote a boat, uh, wrote a boat, wrote a, wrote a book. Yeah, he wrote a boat. Yeah, that's row, row, row your boat. But he wrote a book. Uh, John Ortberg wrote a book, and this is what it was called. Everybody's normal till you get to know them. I'm not making that up. That's, he wrote a book. Everybody's normal till you get to know them. And in the book, he, he writes this story. John Gilbert only lived to age 25. When John was five years old, he was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, a genetic progressive debilitating disease. It would claim his life 20 years later, but not before subtracting almost everything from him. Every year, John Gilbert lost something in time. In time, he lost the ability to do all the outward things that we take for granted, even the ability to speak. But there was one moment that stood out. It happened when he was invited to a National Football League fundraising auction. When it began, one particular item caught John's eye. It was a basketball signed by all the players of the Sacramento Kings. John so desperately wanted the ball that when it came up for bid, he felt his hand raise up in the air. And his mother quickly brought it back down, knowing they didn't have the funds to cover any bid. The bidding on the basketball continued with excitement. It rose to an astonishing amount compared to other items at the auction. Finally, a man made a bid that no one else could possibly match, and he won the prize. The man walked to the front, claimed the basketball, but instead of going back to his seat, the man walked across the room. And he gently placed it into the thin, small hands of the boy who would never dribble the ball down a court, never throw it to a teammate, never fired from the foul line, but would cherish it as long as he lived. 
John Gilbert, while he was still able, wrote these words, and I quote, It took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room, then thunderous applause and weeping eyes. To this day, I'm amazed. And then he asked, before he died, he said this question. Have you ever been given a gift that you, you could have never gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return? You get the picture? The number one thing that produces contentment in your life is realizing how much God has already given you. When I was growing up, I can still remember my mother and father arguing at the, at the table over, over their, with their cigarettes, puffing away. They were arguing. And I remember, I don't know if it was my mom or my dad, one said to the other, we got to get a riding lawnmower. And my, I don't know if it was my mother or father said back to, my, to the other one and said, uh, why? And they said, I still remember them saying, because the neighbor has one. <laughs> I'm just, how many of you are grateful today? But God gave us what we, couldn't deserve, what we didn't deserve and could never earn. And that produces a grateful spirit. A grateful spirit. God has not given us what we deserve. Here's my third wisdom discovery. Because God is powerful, he is always in control. Let's say that, well, let's say that one out loud. Because God is powerful, he is always in control. In chapter 1, verse 3, 4, and 5, the scripture says, The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. Why does Nahum say all of this? Because the cruel Assyrians ruled most of the world when Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah lived. In 722 B.C., Assyria defeated Israel. The Assyrians took the people from Israel away to Assyria. And around before that, in 750 B.C., Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. 600,000 people in Nineveh, surrounded by a wall 100 kilometers long, 40 meters high. Temples, palaces, libraries, buildings where Nineveh's people met to praise their gods and images and idols. And what is Nahum saying? He's, here's exactly what he's saying. Get this. Nahum is saying that nobody in Judah ever thought that anyone could defeat the Assyrians in Nineveh. Nobody believed that anyone can destroy Nineveh with the ruling Assyrians in charge. The people thought, believed that Assyria was much too strong for anyone to overcome its wicked influence. But God at this, get this, at this moment called Nahum to what? To prophesy something. Tell them, Nahum, tell them, God will break the powers of the Assyrians. God will destroy the city of Nineveh. God will save his people who trust him. And verse 8, chapter 1, with an overrunning flood, God will make an utter end of Nineveh. In other words, just today, just like God sent the Babylonians to destroy the sinful Assyrians, so God will send a Savior to deliver our sinful hearts. Did you get the song we just sang a few minutes ago? I, don't, I think I missed a couple words, but uh, uh, your shackles rise, your shackles are no more. He has broken every chain. Do you, believe, do you really believe that God has the ability to break the chain of sin? 
so that we can obey God and walk and with, and with joy, do what God has told us to do by the grace of God, of course, by the grace of God. How many, how many of you really believe in Romans chapter 6 where sin abounds, grace much more abounds? Do you believe that? Oh, come on, that's it. Do you really believe that? You really believe that? Where sin abounds, grace can actually more... In other words, Nahum is saying what you see is impossible and improbable. God says, I see is possible, doable, certain when Jesus comes with good news. In other words, Nahum's prophecy is for end time and all of time. Like God intervened with the flood in Noah. Like God intervened with the Exodus. Like God intervened with miracles during Elijah and the prophets. Like God sent Jesus to perform many miracles. So Jesus will visibly return and make his presence visible and undeniable. The fact is that Nahum has a New Testament theme to it. The New Testament writers use the scripture to teach the gospel from Nahum. And while we live in a broken, sinful world, God wanted Nahum to get the message across, and he wants to get the message across today. That's why it's in the canon of scripture, and it's in your hand. What's it mean? It simply means this. While we live in a broken and sinful world, God is still all-powerful, sovereign, and in ultimate control. He has a plan and a timetable that's certain. What's this mean to you and me? It means you can rest well and trust God with the things and the people outside of your control. Everywhere you look, if it's in the natural only, you'll be in trouble. In trouble. I hear people everywhere I go, I, I can't even sit at McDonald's and wait for my car to get fixed on Route 11 at Pet Boys with, with uh, about 10 senior citizens sitting around the table talking. They go from Walmart to the White House. And then they get to this prescription why it's not enough, why Medicare A is wrong, why Medicaid B is wrong, why their Social Security check's not enough, why the raise wasn't big enough, why the government's gone, who's going to be the next president? And, every, and they're sitting around the table, and I say to myself, God, is that what I'm going to be like 15 years from now? Oh, God, help me, please. Shoot, shoot me. Oh, I'm just kidding. Shoot. How many of you know God's, God is sovereignly and in control? How many of you really believe Isaiah 52.7, our God reigns? Do you, do you really believe that? We all know in a broken world, things break. Bodies break. I understand that. But, but God uh, is trying to get a message across to, to, uh, to his people and to us today. That you can chill. You can rest well. You can trust God. And if you came in here with stuff, there comes a time where you need to pray and lay it down. A teacher walked around a room while teaching a stress management class to the audience. She raised a glass of water and asked, how heavy is this glass of water? Students called out answers that ranged from 8 ounces to 20 ounces. She replied, and I quote, the absolute weight doesn't matter. It depends on how long I hold it. If I hold it for a minute, it's not a problem. If I hold it for an hour, I'll have an ache in my arm. If I hold it for a day, my arm will feel numb and paralyzed. In each case, the weight of the glass doesn't change. But the longer I hold it, the heavier it becomes. She then said the stresses and worries in life are like the glass of water. Think about them for a while, nothing happens. Think about them a bit longer, they begin to hurt. 
Think about them all day long and you'll feel paralyzed and capable of doing anything. In prayer, we can put the glass down. The Holy Spirit's telling some of you today through the book of Nahum, you can put the glass down. And the last thing uh, the Lord says in the chapter one that really speaks to my heart, and this is where I want to just park for a moment and, and conclude in a few moments, but would you write down number four? Because God is good, his character is worthy to be trusted. Would you, would, you, would you say that with me out loud, number four, ready? Because God is good, his character is worthy to be trusted. Look at verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Now, what does that really mean? Good question. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust him. How do we know that God is good today? I go to a funeral. The, the, the son is 27 years old. His father gets in my face angry at the funeral home in Conklin on the south side of Binghamton. And he was 27 when he was killed. And the father gets in my face. I'm about to preach. And he says, where was God when my son died? How do we know that God is good? One plane runs into a mountain. Another plane lands safely on the Hudson. Is God good to both? I have rheumatic fever. I'm nine years old. My parents can't handle it. They ship me to Leesburg, Virginia. My grandparents take me in. They take me to their little Pentecostal church and lay hands on me. Every service, four times a week, for two years, I never walk a step. And yet my two roommates, Mark and George, both died in Mercy Hospital. Is God still good to both? How do we know that God is good? What protects us from ever getting sour, entitled, a bitterness towards God? What helps us to have a wholesome God concept and self-concept in a broken world? In verse 15 of chapter 1, here's the answer. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Every scholar says this reference is undeniable in Nahum's prophecy. In verse 11, Nahum refers to a wicked counselor coming from Assyria. The apostle Paul spoke of the wicked one at the end of the age who would fight Christ when he comes. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. In Revelation, he's called the beast. And Nahum tells us something. In verse 11, this evil one comes with wicked thoughts to sow. In verse 12, they shall be cut down, which means once Nineveh is destroyed, Judah's troubles will be over. Verse 13, I will break his yoke off of you. Verse 14, I will cut off the images. So while Nahum's prophecy is about God overcoming Nineveh and the sin and the power of the Assyrians, how does it relate to you and I this morning at Trinity Assembly of God on Route 31 on this beautiful day of August 11th, 2019? Verse 15, behold the feet of him who brings good news and publishes peace. Every scholar declares that this points to Jesus coming in person. He is the one referred to in Nahum 1.15, that Jesus will fulfill or absorb God's judgment on your behalf and mine. You see, in Isaiah 52.7 and in Romans 10.15, they repeat, the writers Isaiah and Paul repeat Nahum 1.15, how beautiful are the feet that preach the gospel that produces peace. What's that mean? It means like God rescued Judah in Nineveh from the wickedness of the Assyrians. So God will rescue you and me from the wickedness of sin and sin's control. Rescue us from what? 
verse 15, when Jesus comes, he'll rescue us from the judgment and the wrath of God. He'll deliver us, free us from sin's power because of good news. And the result of being rescued is what? The scripture says because of the good news, there'll be the fruit of peace. In other words, as Nineveh was the powerful political arm of the Babylonian Empire and was cut off, subdued, and overthrown by God's power. Now get this. So the gospel of good news of Jesus will cut off, subdue, overthrow the idols and sinful affections of our hearts. In other words, and here's the illustration God gives in Nahum. As God overflowed the Tigris River and swept away the city gates, remember what Judah said. There's no way. There's, there's no way. There's no way for Nineveh to ever be impregnated because no one can get through the gates and break the powers of the outside wall to get through to overcome Nineveh. And here's what God did. He sent a flood from the nearby Tigris River and the water just began to rise and rise and rise and the water washed the gates away. The Babylonians came in and Assyrians were subdued. How many of you know God has a way to break the powers of every sin? Only God can do that. Now, why is this the gospel of Nahum? Because everything in here points to Jesus. One day Jesus is coming back. His feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives described in Zechariah 14. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit takes the gospel and frees us from the controlling power of sin to reach our fullest potential. Now, why does God do this? And I'm finished. Why does God do this? You know why? It's because God is good. Verse 7. The Lord is good. What's that mean? In 1 Chronicles 16, 34, give thanks to the Lord for he is. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is. Psalm 100, verse 4 and 5, give thanks to the Lord and praise his name for the Lord is. So what does it mean that God is good? If good things happen and bad things happen and painful things happen and excited teams ha things happen, my son just this week, uh, he's got four tickets for a, for a Yankee game against my Baltimore Orioles. What are you laughing at? He texted me this morning. I thought it was, you know, Dad, I'm praying for you. Uh, God's going to anoint you today. God's really going to bless the meeting. He, my son texts me this morning at like 7 o'clock. Why he's changing diapers? Dad, the Orioles lost last night, 23 to 2. Ha, 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 ha. Shut up. I'm going to text him back tonight when I get finished. I'm going to say, may fleas infest your bed tonight in Jesus' name. I Somebody, he, my son's got four tickets for me to go this, no, this Thursday, this Thursday, the 15th, to see the Orioles play the Yankees. Are you kidding me? I'm going to drive, he lost 23 to 2 last night. Are you kidding me? Worst team in me. Are you kidding me? I'm going to drive five hours to watch my Orioles to play the New York Yankees. He'll be rooting for the Yankees. I'll be rooting for the Orioles. Tension. Who wins? Whose prayer will God answer? <laughs> Here's how the Bible defines God's goodness. Psalm 119, 68. The Lord is good in his nature and the Lord is good in his actions. In other words, number one, God is morally good in and of himself. It comes naturally for him. God alone is goodness. He's the highest possible degree and level of goodness. That's God. And number two, he's good in his actions. How do we know that God is always good even though things don't go the way we planned?
Psalm 145 list gives us a whole list of his blessings, natural blessings. Psalm 107, four ways that God intervenes to rescue because he is good. But I like this one in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is God's goodness in the flesh to reveal his ultimate goodness. How do we know that God is always good? How can, how can you walk out of this room today without complaint? Here's why. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The scripture says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What's that mean? It means Jesus is God's goodness in the flesh. He demonstrated God's desire to be good to you. How did God do this? Everybody knows. By taking the judgment that our sins deserved upon himself. Get the statement. It's on the back of your bulletin. The amazing substitution of God's son in our place on the cross is the undisputed picture of his unmerited goodness. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We do things that prove we can't earn it. Yet because God is good, his nature desires for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, how do we respond to this? And I'm finished. How do we respond to God's goodness? Paul said in Romans 2, 2, 4, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Question mark. Can't you see that it's his kindness? His kindness is intended to what? Turn you from your sin. You know why God's been good to you? So that you and I could respond to his goodness. His kindness is to what? Lead us to repentance. In other words, recognizing God's goodness and kindness is to lead us to repentance and gratefulness and surrender and submission and obedience. Why is it so important? Because because God's justice means that he must punish sin. On the other hand, God's mercy means that he longs to pardon and forgive sin. So here's the answer. The tension between justice and mercy can only be resolved in one place. Where is it? At the cross. Because at the cross, only the cross, do justice and mercy meet. At the cross where sins are both punished and pardoned. Jesus takes the punishment. We get the pardon. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. How many of you thank God today that God is good? How many of you thank God God has always been good, always will be good, and no matter what you go through, God will always, always, always be good? He cannot be any other, he cannot have any other nature because he is good. Would you bow your heads in a word of prayer as the musicians come for a moment? Everyone, if you could hold steady just for a moment. Nahum gives us a timely word. His love won't leave us alone. There's some of you today that God is pulling at your heart. It's not because he's against you. He, because he, it's just the opposite. He is jealous for his glory in your life. He wants to make his name famous in your heart. Today and in your days ahead. He's jealous. Some of you may be struggling or playing with or been distracted. They're just lies. All temptation is a lie. It's promising you something it cannot deliver. All temptation is a lie. And some of you have been tempted. Some of you are on the edge. Some of you have been dabbling in some stuff that God wants to wean, wean your heart and change your heart. Why? Because God is jealous. He's got something better for you. Secondly, God hasn't given us what we deserve. 
thirdly, he is always in control. One of the greatest ways to enjoy the journey in your life is in every season, remind yourself, God is always in control. How, God, will you ever, ever, ever get through the walls and get into Nineveh? And di- because God is always in control. You may be here and have difficulty, difficulty trusting the character of God. But the scripture says, he's worthy to be trusted. What's my response? It's his kindness. It's his goodness. His goodness, his goodness, God, your goodness is ever faithful. So if you're here and maybe you've doubted the goodness of God, maybe you're going through a tough season and you need to put the glass down, maybe you feel a little angrier because someone has offended you or cheated you or betrayed you or hurt you and you have a hard time forgiving forgiving and you and you want the goodness of God to so overwhelm you that will help you to humble yourself and be a, a good forgiver maybe you're here and you know there's something that God is after and maybe today you're willing to give God permission to bring change where change is needed inside your heart if you're here and you know there's something God wants to change inside your heart in any area what in any in any area whatsoever And today you're willing to humble yourself before God and say, God, today, God, today, God, today, I'm willing to give you permission to change in me what needs to be changed. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up and hold it up for a moment? Just hold it up to to the Lord, not to me, but to the Lord. In in every section, just, just slip it up and say, God, that's me. God, that's me. God, that's me. God, today, help me to celebrate your goodness. Help me to humble myself and thank you, God. You haven't given me what I deserve. It's your kindness and your goodness that has brought me to today. Could we all stand together, please? Let's all stand together.